Welcome to Better Than Nothing. Hello, this is Ken Root. It's September and the fall season is upon us. I spent last weekend enjoying the cooler temperatures and the changing season out in the rural Iowa countryside. On Saturday morning, Jane and I looked for pumpkins and found a farm that has over 150 varieties plus a flower garden to die for. The lady who started all this is 88 years old and assisted by her son and daughter. I spoke with all of them. On Sunday, I attended the Iowa Barn Tour. It's a spring and fall endeavor that highlights historical old barns across the state that have been given new life by their owners. The barn I visited is round and located below a hill just a few miles from the Mississippi River in Clayton County. I spoke with two generations of the family that built it and still has it in their possession on a 150-year-old farm. Better Than Nothing is sponsored by Concept by Iowa Hearing. We are committed to helping you hear better. Visit iowahearing.com or call 877-955-4020 for a free hearing screening. Well, we're in a hollow-sounding building, and you probably can't tell what it is because this is a round barn. It's located near Millville, and it's owned by the Friedline family, going back four generations, I believe, to 1914 when it was built. And I'm joined by uh, Jeff Friedline, who is the current generation of... uh, contractor, farmer, and uh, active uh, collector. Jeff, I've uh, talked to you many times, uh, worked with you many times. I understand today you're having a celebration of this barn like there are others across the state. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, The Iowa Barn Foundation was generous to help us put a new roof on our big old round barn. It's almost like a family member. So now we're at the point that we're sharing it with the public. About how big is this barn and when was it built? Well, it was built in 1914 by a carpenter from Sweden. It was designed by my grandfather. It's about 72 feet across and from the basement floor to the cupola is approximately 57 feet. Well, it's big and uh, joining also Larry Friedline, who is Jeff's dad. You're probably not real proud of that, are you? Most of the time. (laughs) He's a good guy. Tell me uh, your memories of this barn, uh, going back to what was, year were you born? I was born in 42. I was a baby here for a few years. Folks moved away to another farm, but it stayed in the family. And when I got married, my wife and I lived here for four years, for mm-hmm. 61 to 65. When I was a little guy, that's yeah, it was the main part of the farm at that point. But when they moved away, they went to a different farm and this got rented out to other yeah. farmers at that point. And then uh, now it's... It's part of the farm, but it's part of the crop system, and we keep a few livestock here, what we did until this year. Well, first thing I'd say on behalf of a lot of people, thank you for not tearing it down, because most of these have really disappeared, you know, by misuse or or other things. So 
It has some uh, emotional value to Jeff here, I know. How about to you? Oh, yeah. We, we weren't about to let it go to hell. Uh, we, we were going to fix her up, and no matter what, we were going to fix her up. So, yeah. What did it take, Jeff, to get it to the shape it's in now? Sweat equity. Yeah. A lot of sweat equity. Well, you've got a floor here that looks like it's old boards but new. Is that accurate? Yeah, these are new replacement boards. They're still what they call the home solid boards. They're not playing down or anything. It's yeah. a, a layer over top of the layer underneath it, which was getting old and had a few holes in it here and there. And yeah. So last year, Jeff and his hired man and I helped out, and we well, you can see we put a whole new layer over the top here. But yeah, it looks absolutely great. I grew up in central Oklahoma, and my parents always referred to the round barn at Arcadia. And there was a red barn that was in terrible shape when I was a kid, and we'd drive by it because it was right on 66 Highway, and it was a landmark. And my parents held their money really close to the vest, you know, they Depression-era people. The only thing I ever saw them give money to freely was when they decided they were going to restore that barn. Yeah. And it was several hundred thousand dollars total that went into that barn. So do you have any idea about how much it cost to build this barn? Back in them days, no, I don't. But I'm sure, you know, you'd be surprised at how little the dollars would have been then. Yeah. Uh, I, I can't even venture a guess, but 1914, 100 yeah. bucks bought a lot of stuff. Yeah. And there's been a tour through here today, Jeff. How many people have come through yesterday, today? Um, yesterday we had 148, I believe, signed the guest book, so that you may want to double that for spouse and mm -hmm. so on. Today, we it's still early. We probably had upper 70s, 80s, yeah. but I'm expecting a fair crowd after lunch here, yeah. churches out and stuff. Do you guys know how many round barns there are? Anybody know how many round barns there are in Iowa? Well, I believe right now on the Iowa barn tour, there's eight featured, mm -hmm. but there are more. There's maybe six miles from here. There's another nice little round barn very close to where I live, but the gentleman just likes to keep it kind of private and to himself, but it, he does maintain it and take care of it. A lady with the association yesterday said that originally in Iowa there was 150 plus round barns and now it's down to around 50 to 60 yeah. in the state. That's Iowa, so you know, I think there's more in Wisconsin. The thing to me that's impressive is the engineering. First of all, to build it. But secondly, why it was built like it is was all function. I mean, this wasn't about art and style. This was about function, yeah, wasn't it? Yes, yeah. Well, it made things easier to take care of your cattle and stuff the way they designed it, you know. Yeah. Try to make life as easy as you could back in them days. And, and I, you're right, function. Yeah. So, Jeff, let me give you this. It's 1914. You got no electricity, obviously. Right. You got no running water. And you got power from steam engines and horses primarily. So, how did you utilize a barn like this with those capabilities? Well, Ken, I'm a 1962 model, mm -hmm. so 1914 and between 62 is a gray area for me. Nobody here that's alive from 1914, there might be a few uh, ghosts up in the attic somewhere, but if you think about it, they needed gravity to work for them. I guess your great-grandfather thought of that. Yep. Uh, great-grandpa was probably one of the first ones in our family that I consider a little bit of an engineer. And he actually dug up on top of the hill a perfectly round cylinder, which is a, a water vault or cistern we call it, and they erected a windmill up there. And because of the head pressure, the gravity being 
90 feet in the air, they were going to have some of the very first pressurized water down here to water the cattle and stuff. Whether it was time or fate, they never really did get it up and running because Grandpa passed away, but the vault is still up there. It looks like brand new, never had water in it. There's still piping laying down the hill and stuff, but then electricity probably came into play and they put a well pump in. What happened to the windmill? Um, about 10 years ago, we had some real bad straight-line winds, and uh, it connected with a walnut tree, and the walnut tree connected with the windmill, and we had a major domino thing going on up there. And it's well, we're sitting on the second floor. So what was was here? You can drive in the second floor from the back side. So you could drive through. You could drive all the way through. Yeah, this, this barn had a front and a back door. I don't know how you describe that in a round barn, but you could drive all the way through on one side. You could actually drive around the silo center in the center of it. And when I was growing up, we did square bales. So we'd bring our square bales in on a wagon, drive right around, unload them right off the side of the wagon. So it made life relatively easy for that part. Did it have any kind of a hook mechanism like some of the barns did to pull hay up? Or did you just stack hay in this area? Well, in our generation, we just stacked them. But... Um, if you had a camera or were physically here, you could see the hay hooks still up in the rafters. The original ropes are still tied to them, to the beams and stuff. So uh, if we had a flashback to the early 1900s, we could be putting loose hay in here yet tonight. I think one of the most interesting things about the um, engineering of the era was the way that they could use horses to pull the hay up and move it down a rail inside a barn. This, this doesn't need it because it's round, but some of the other barns, a very sophisticated system, but you could move a lot of hay in one day and put it in that barn. Oh yeah, it's labor saving no matter how you look at it, whether it's the hay track, the way grandpa designed the uh, stanchions in the basement so that the uh, cattle's rear ends where the udders were automatically spread apart because it was round, heads were closer, tails were farther. Yeah. They didn't hit each other. Uh, cleaner butters for milking. Um, it was just a lot, a lot of thought went into the. Yeah. So the first floor you just brought it up was the dairy, more barn area. Were they milking cows when you were alive, or when did that stop? Well, yeah, they milked cows when I was alive. I never milked cows here. As a kid, I moved up the hill to another farm up there, and yeah, I grew up milking cows. I milked cows till I was probably fifty something. I don't know. But anyway, I never milked here. We did have stock cattle running down here. I lived here for a few years. The guy that was milking up until wife and I moved in, he moved on to another farm, and we had our dairy herd up the road a ways. So to answer the question, no, I never milked cows here. You taught Jeff to work. I tried. Uh, or you tried. <laughs> yeah, I think it worked out. Yeah, yeah. Jeff's one of the harder workers I know. Now, you have uh, enough, let's say, to be able to come back and to replenish that history a little bit. I understand you've got an antique tractor and you like this barn real well. Well, I do have an antique tractor or 40, but <laughs> okay. you know, it's antique tractors are kind of like alcohol. You know, you just got to have them and you don't wake up with a real bad headache in the morning. But yeah, antique tractors are kind of one of my fetishes. Restoring this barn has become kind of one of those fetishes. For today, you know, we have changed so much, but yet we love these old tractors. What is that, a 70 Oliver parked right over there? That's a little Oliver 60. You know, one of its little brothers, it used to be the tractor that pulled the hay racks around in this upstairs of this barn. 
And you go on these uh, tractor rides where they've got every kind of tractor imaginable, and everybody wants to buy either a real-sized or a model tractor of what they grew up with. And I married into the Ertl family about nine years ago, and of course they made a living on selling you toy tractors. We're Oliver people. Yep. I've farmed with Olivers for years, and of course Jeff's got that in his blood now too. But not to say that I don't have other ones, but Oliver's yeah. in, in my blood. I love for people to tell me stories, and Jeff and I can get on the phone and have a hard time letting him get back to work because we start telling stories about this, that, or the other. Uh, but Jeff does a lot of work in our neighborhood and is the, kind of the Johnny-on-the-spot guy that uh, works for a lot of people every day, plus you farm. So you and your wife stay awfully busy. I think that's probably why we're still married. <laughs> you know, but, you know, she's a teacher's associate, I got into the contracting business probably 20-plus years ago. That helps support my farming habit. Um, you know, we just uh, like it to be busy, like to meet people, do a lot of different things. Well, Larry, to go back to this, uh, it was your grandfather who built the, far the barn. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And then your father, did he farm all his life? Yeah, he, he farmed on this farm until uh, in the mid-40s, that's when we moved to a farm that he had bought up the highway for a ways. He actually bought this farm after my grandmother passed because it was the family farm at that point. So it's been in the family since, uh, well, 150 years last yeah. year. You are a heritage farm then. Yes. The state of Iowa gave you that recognition. Yes, we got that last year. We well, I know some people great. that are really proud of 100 years, of which they should be, but 150 years. There are a few farms uh, and we're pretty close to the Mississippi River here, which I think would be some of the first land that was settled in Iowa. So that would be a reason why there'd be older farms here than west of here. Right. And like Dad commented, this uh, farm got its 150. My wife and I own her family farm, which is probably over 160 now. And we also have another farm where Dad grew up that was well over 100, approaching 150. So uh, farming is deep in our blood. Yeah. And to keep this moving, you have a son who clearly is better in many ways than you, Brandon, uh, that you should be proud of me saying that. Right. And he, he and his wife. Yep. Brandon Margot, uh, uh, she's a teacher, and Brandon is a banker, so he likes to push the numbers. And then I have a daughter with three great-grandchildren, and her husband works at Brown's as an RV technician. But the thing that was really neat with our family is we're all within about four miles of each other. Yeah. So... What a story. A big round barn here at Millville, and if you uh, want to go on a barn tour, they have them every year. Don't they put these together most every year? Spring and fall. Spring and fall. So you can go through barns in Iowa, and people make stops. Jeff and his family have been here yesterday and today. Uh, and if you drive by, this farm, this barn's a little hard to see. It, they, used the, they used this hill for a reason, didn't they? Didn't they block the wind with oh, yeah, this? Yeah, yeah. It, you build... Back in the days, they'd try and build not on top of the hill, but down in the valley somewhere for uh, well wind in the wintertime, and then, you know, the sun would shine in and warm you up a little faster. Summertime, if you're on the right side of the hill, you'd have shade and be cooler in the evenings if you were down close to a creek or something like that. So, yeah, there, there was reasons for that. And then they'd put the building someplace where it wasn't good farmland, you know, against, against yeah. the bluff or something. Yeah. So, yeah. There. Larry Friedline, Jeff Friedline, thank you both very much. Thank you. Nice to see you, sir. Appreciate you not tearing this down years ago. Thank you much. 
The Friedline Barn is on Highway 52, about a half mile northwest of where it crosses the Turkey River, near the small town of Millville in Clayton County. To give you an example of how rural it is, Clayton County has no stoplights. In a moment, we'll go pumpkin hunting and talk with a lady who loves dahlias, globe-shaped flowers of many colors. She's growing them for a wedding next weekend. Imagine a bride and groom with hundreds of pumpkins and thousands of flowers all around. Let's take a moment to talk with Taylor Parker, president of Concept by Iowa Hearing. Taylor, are there widely used medications that can negatively impact our hearing? Great question, and yes, there are. There are over 200 prescribed or over-the-counter medications that can attribute to hearing loss. And, you know, when you're looking, when we're talking about, you know, medications, the average person over the age of seven, or over the age of 55, excuse me, 72% of people over the age of 55 take at least one drug. And two-thirds of all drug reaction, adverse drug reactions, occur over the age of 60. So you're talking almost three-quarters of the you know population over 55 take at least one drug or one medication. You know, we're talking simple drugs from an aspirin regimen. An aspirin regimen, and we're not talking baby aspirin, we're talking regular size aspirin. If you take an aspirin regimen um, five days a week or more, you have an increased risk of hearing loss by 26%. Um, some of the big ones are diuretics, so people that have uh, high blood pressure, kidney disease, um, like the myosin group, you know, erythromycin, vancomycin, that whole myosin group um, can attribute to hearing loss. Um, hydrocodone, um, you know, um, oxycotton, you know, um, Rush Limbaugh is the famous one for that because he, you know, got addicted to the oxycotton and that caused his hearing loss. Then he had to get a cochlear implant. So, you know, and, and he was very honest at, you know, toward the end about what, you know, what caused that. Um, chemotherapy drugs. So if anyone has gone through chemotherapy, chemotherapy wreaks havoc, not only on your body, but on your hearing as well. Um, you know, the little blue pill, little blue pill uh, can attribute to hearing loss. So there are, you know, many different uh, you know, medications, whether they're over-the-counter prescribed, um, that can attribute to hearing loss. So the best thing to do is, is, you know, get with your doctor and the pharmacist to find out what the side effects are, if there are other medications maybe where certain, um, certain side effects are less with one versus another. And it's just having that open dialogue, you know, with your, with your providers to really understand are there, you know, ramifications for the medications I'm taking. And sometimes, there's just, you know, there, there's no other choice but to take the medication, just understanding um, that it can attribute to hearing loss and, and it's something you need to monitor. Thank you, Taylor. Schedule your free hearing screening at Concept by Iowa Hearing. You can reach them at 877-955-4020 or online at iowahearing.com. Out in the country, near the town of Edgewood, Iowa, is a family that's been farming for over a hundred years. Francis and Joyce Turn began their married life on this location 60 years ago. Mr. Turn, Francis, has passed away, but Joyce, now 88, is still an amazing worker who loves the beauty of her flower garden. I followed her around the garden until I was tired and then I sat down and spoke to her son and daughter about their childhood 
pumpkins, and a wedding next weekend that will be decorated in summer and fall colors grown on the farm. I know it's radio, but Joyce Turn's voice makes the colorful dahlia blooms easy to imagine. Well, how much time do you spend outside working? As much as possible, but I have a lot of help. Good. I went through cancer surgery a year ago, so I'm not all that ambitious anymore, but Michelle and Richard really helped me. Yeah. Well, your flowers are absolutely beautiful. What specialty area do you like the best? The dahlias. All right, I'll wait under this tree with you. Now, My gosh, these are these, pretty. These are called ball dahlias because uh -huh. they would perfect little balls they make. Uh -huh. They're red. Yeah, there's some red ones. There's some white, white ones. ones. Starting to fall over. We have them all in cages, uh -huh, but, yeah. but some of them are getting so top heavy that they're falling Oh my gosh, they they're, they're beautiful. But we call this our Iowa State flower. What are the cyclone colors? Cardinal and gold. Cardinal and gold, there you go. What uh, do you have to do to these in the winter? After it freezes, we have to dig, the, cut the tops off, mm -hmm. dig, dig the tubers, and keep them over winter in the basement. And so they will grow this big the year you plant them back. Mm -hmm. You must have a very large tuber area on these things. Well, it's surprising. Now this is new this year. Mm -hmm. And when the tuber came, it was probably about this big. Oh, really? Just... But, like a grapefruit, maybe, or smaller. Oh, yeah, more uh, oblong. Um, yeah. Now, s some, I don't know how big it, uh, it will be when we dig it, but some of these, they, they'll come up in clumps. I mean, there'll be all these tubers fastened together, and you can get a, a different flower from another plant from each one of those tubers. That's how the companies make their money, you know, that sell yeah. them. So you're going to make cuttings of them and take them to the wedding? Yes. They're having the reception um, in a tent mm -hmm. on the island, you know. And uh, so my goal is vases of flowers marching down the, oh. the tables in the, at the reception. Beautiful, beautiful. You do know I'm recording this, don't you? Oh, I thought I'd tell you so it wouldn't be inappropriate. But. I won't say anymore. <laughs> no, no, it's delightful. He's not going to swear. It is absolutely. So, Michelle, there's a little work in this cutting and pulling these tubers for the winter, isn't there? They're very much so. It's not, it's, it's not pulling, it's digging. And we usually wait until there's snow on our back when we're digging. And uh, it's muddy. That's always our goal, too, to have it nice and muddy and snowy. Yeah. So it's extra work. Mm, that yep. sounds yeah, it is. And then put them in bushel baskets and carry them to a basement. But your daughter is going to uh, benefit from this year's growth. Absolutely. Our middle daughter is getting married, and we will do all the floral arrangements for the wedding. And there's no specific color to the wedding. It is just whatever Grandma has in her garden for flower colors and pumpkins. Uh -huh. Oh, perfect. Wow. Yes. Perfect. Yeah, I can take it. And that's two weeks from now? Yeah, two weeks from today. Tick, 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 tick. I tick. know. So we're hoping that the frost holds off and it's looking good. Oh, I think you'll be all right I on think frost. Be just fine, yep. Oh. What got you into doing this? I mean, you could be in a rocking chair or you could knit or you could paint pottery, you know. What got you into this? Well, I've always been a gardener. Yeah. And uh, dahlias, 
are coming more and more into favor every year. Mm. So you you actually were ahead of your time. Well, <laughs> yes, but I mean, we get new varieties every year too. In the winter, how much seed catalog time do you do? A lot. Yeah. A okay. lot. Yeah. And uh, do you do you make a a list of how would how does a person like you determine what you're going to plant? Because I take it there's a lot of prep before you plant things. I go through the seed catalogs and make lists, and I save all my seed packets from like from this year. I'll save for next year so I can look and see what I had. Mm-hmm. And then I go through the catalogs and see what's new. Right. I'm always interested in new things. Yeah, yeah, I can see that each time. Now, do you have any market for these? Do you ever uh, sell any of these pieces? Never have, never have. I keep thinking maybe that's something we should do. You know, florists are really anxious to get dahlias. Okay, they're, they're five feet high. Could the average person grow this in a place with minimal care, or do these take a lot of care to grow like this? We watered this year. We laid the hose out. Yeah. You have to really soak the ground up good, you know, and then maybe don't water again for another week. But no, well, and deadheading. I I like to cut off the dead flowers too. I. You'll, you'll see plenty of dead ones out here, but uh, I do like to cut off the dead ones. So keep them looking nice and keep them producing. You know, the more you cut, the more they're going to produce. Yeah. Now you've got everything from reds to pinks to yellows over here, a, a, a range. And I would say in these plants, there's a very wide range of what yes. you could grow. Yes, yes. Like there's little ball dahlias, little minis down mm-hmm. here. And the great big ones are called dinner plate, simply yeah. for the size. Yeah. A lot of whites this year because of the wedding. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorites there, that tall peach ball shape. Yes. That, that's Yolanda, J-O-L-A-N-D-A, Yolanda. Beautiful. We are at the home farm where your mother still lives, and she took us on the most amazing tour of her flowers and things. You must realize that not everybody got a chance to grow up in an environment like this. I'm glad you said that because I always felt sorry for my friends who lived in town growing up that they didn't they didn't work in the garden until dark and didn't have that, I guess I considered it fun at the time, and they yeah. didn't have animals as their playmates. So, yeah, I, I always felt sorry for my, my city friends. Richard, what did you think when you were a teenager or maybe younger and having to work on the farm and what your parents required? Well, I guess I didn't do anything different. I mean, that's what you did every day, and I enjoyed it. And my, I know my friends from town, they didn't have, busy like I was, I mean, they, they would go to the pool or ride their bicycles around town, and I was busy doing farm stuff, but I enjoyed that. Now, we're sitting near Edgewood, so really Edgewood is very much a farming community. It's got an Amish contingent to it. So... There were probably several kids like you in school that had similar environment. Oh, absolutely. There was a lot of farm kids in when I, my class I grew up and a lot of kids, back, that was back in there when they made square bales of hay yet. And a lot of kids would help local farmers bake square bales of hay and that's a lost art anymore. Well, now we're sitting here and the dogs have gone out to make sure you're safe by running the four-wheeler away. You had a vehicle just pull in behind that probably wants some pumpkins. Mm-hmm. 
So really that's what I wanted to talk about. You guys grow an incredible array of pumpkins and your mother seems to be uh, involved in all of this. She's more in the flowers it appears. Is it you who's uh, pushing the pumpkins? The pumpkins were initially pushed by her. Uh, Richard can tell the story, but we were kids. I think we had some extra seeds that grew a few too many pumpkins at what we could use. And we'd go out on those frosty fall mornings and put them in our little red wagon and pull them back up to the to the barn. And that one year when we had a surplus, uh, she thought, well, we might as well sell them. So we probably took a little ad out in the Edgewood Reminder, the local paper, and that was over 50 years ago and since then the locals have just always known that the Torrens are going to have pumpkins for sale. How do you prep for this? <laughs> it's, it starts very early in the winter when all the seed catalogs start arriving and you go down through and you have your wish list and what people might be interested in using around their porch or yard and you make your orders and you go from there then. So planting pumpkins, is there a pretty good chance you're the still farmer here? that you're going to be able to make a crop of pumpkins most years? We, we've never had a crop failure. Some years are better than others, of course, but we've always had a nice supply of pumpkins every year, and we've just continued to add a little bit more every year. This year, I believe, I counted up between the pumpkins and the gourds and squash. I think we're trying 185 varieties. A hundred, I guess right, 185 varieties. Yes. My goodness. Does that make it to where that people just can't resist buying something when they show up, Michelle? That is our goal. We, we certainly should have something for everyone. And that part of the fun, though, is show, showcasing the new varieties that we've had over the last year also. Well, give me some ideas. I mean, how can you have, you have an orange pumpkin with a green stem? Okay, let's start with that. And then from that, how do you pick which other varieties do you grow? You, you must be reaching the edges here with 185. Well, there's a lot more varieties than that, but try something new every year and you have some things that are good customer favorites from you, you always have them, and you always have some things that they just didn't grow very well or people didn't want them, so you just yeah. leave them behind and move on then. I saw one variety you called popcorn. Mm -hmm. Tell me about it. Uh, that is a new variety that Richard found this year, and uh, it is... It, to me, it looks like buttery popcorn kernels glued all over a white pumpkin. And we're very hopeful it's going to be a big hit. And uh, we are decorating for a couple fall weddings this year. So we think that could really be used in the wedding decor. The Turn family lives near Edgewood, Iowa. Michelle von Hondorf and mom will be cutting stems this week. Michelle's long-suffering husband, Steve, says the pumpkins have been hauled to the site of the wedding so it should be a beautiful event. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the fall season. I think it's the most beautiful time of year.